Greetings, everyone, in North and South America, Asia, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and all across Africa. Laszlo Montgomery here with another episode of the China History Podcast. We return today after a one-week hiatus from the history, and today we will look at the fabled Three Kingdoms period, the San Guoshi Dai. This was a period of about 60 years that lasted from the time of the the last Han Emperor Xian Di, who abdicated in favor of Cao Cao's son, Cao Pi, in 220 AD, until the time of the fall of the Eastern Wu uh, by the forces of the Jin Dynasty of the Sima family. Then we'll go beyond the Three Kingdoms period and look at the time of all these smaller kingdoms and various dynasties that preceded the later unification of China under the Sui. The three kingdoms were Wei, Shu, and Wu. There were three families, Cao, Liu, and Sun. However, for the three kingdoms period, we often refer to the contenders as Cao Wei, Shu Han, and Dong Wu. The northernmost and most populous, the Cao Wei, was called thus to show the linkage between the Wei dynasty and the Cao family who founded it. The Shu dynasty, out west in Sichuan, to cement its own claim to legitimacy, was called the Shu Han. Remember, the Shu dynasty was founded by the great Liu Bei. Now, if you recall, the Han dynasty was founded by the Liu family. Remember Liu Bang? He was the founder of the Han dynasty, who later reigned as the emperor Han Gaozu. Uh, well, Liu Bei, some 475 years later, using this proven lineage to the Han Emperor Jing Di claims his legitimacy by linking his Shu kingdom to the Han, calling it Shu Han. In this podcast, we're going to look more at the history rather than the specifics of the novel Romance of the Three Kingdoms, written during the late 1300s. I encourage anyone who loves ancient imperial Chinese history and culture to read this novel, Romance of the Three Kingdoms. It's hard to keep all the characters straight. But if you have some sort of study guide to keep track of who's who, uh, it's an enjoyable read. Actually, I can tell you I found plenty of resources available on the web uh, to help keep everything straight. This novel, its stories and characters are very deeply ingrained in the culture of the Chinese and is admired still today. Everybody growing up in the Chinese-speaking world is quite familiar with most of the main characters and stories. This Three Kingdoms period actually starts during the Yellow Turban Rebellion in 184, more than the traditional historical starting point of 220 AD. The Yellow Turban Rebellion, or Huangjin Zhiluan, was the moment in Chinese history when all these various centers of power all grew powerful quickly after the Yellow Turbans were subdued. These were noble families acting as the Han Emperor's military proxies to put this rebellion down. But, unlike Cincinnatus and George Washington, these guys didn't lay down their weapons and go home after the job was done. They started to fight amongst themselves, all the while the Han Emperor still sat on his throne, utterly powerless and simply a pawn in a great game. And as we examined in the last podcast, these several states, kingdoms, or whatever you want to call them, in the end were reduced down to three. Cao Wei, Shu Han, and Dong Wu. And it's these three, plus the Jin, and the chaos that followed the Jin, that we will look at today. 
Now, in addition to the Sanguo Yi, or the Romance of the Three Kingdoms by Liu Guanzhong, you also had a historical work called the Sanguo Zhi, or the Record of the Three Kingdoms. One, a work of fiction based on history, the other is a record of history. So we'll focus on what the San Guo Zhi said rather than uh, Liu Guanzhong's novel. The San Guo Zhi, Record of the Three Kingdoms, was written by Chen Shou, who was an officer in the Shu Han Kingdom, who later served in the Jin court after they bumped off the last of the Three Kingdoms and unified China. So this work, if not influenced by the victors at the time it was written, was a pretty good record of what transpired during this period. Now, the first bit of action you get during this Three Kingdoms period happened real fast. The first major battle was between Liu Bei's Shu Han in the west and Sun Quan of Wu. This was the Battle of Yiling. Uh, Liu Bei was furious that one of his most trusted generals, Guan Yu, had been captured and executed by the Wu, and he swore to avenge the death of this most loyal and righteous comrade who had been at his side since the Yellow Turban Rebellion. We might do another podcast one day just on Guan Yu, who is one of the most central characters in the novel Romance of the Three Kingdoms. You see little statues and shrines to Guan Yu in a lot of shops and restaurants around Asia, and especially in southern China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Here at Yiling, Liu Bei suffered a nasty defeat at the hands of Sun Quan's general, Lu Xun. Now, this battle is also referred to in history as the Battle of Xiaoting. This was in 222. This would be in what is present-day Yichang in Hubei province. There, Liu Bei was soundly defeated, and all thoughts of quickly extinguishing the Eastern Wu were dashed on the plains of Yiling. After Liu Bei suffered this defeat, he retreated to Baidicheng and died there the following year. So, Liu Bei is gone by 223 AD, and he was a uh, real giant of this period, from the Eastern Han to this time of the establishment of the Three Kingdoms. You can visit Liu Bei's tomb in the capital city of Sichuan, in uh, Chengdu. Now, I haven't mentioned him yet, but now with Liu Bei's death, it's as good a time as any to introduce the great Zhuge Liang. So, Zhuge Liang, although I am only mentioning him now after the Battle of Yiling, he's been around for a while. He joined Liu Bei in 207. In that year, Zhuge Liang outlined to Liu Bei his strategy, which was called the Longzhong Plan, or Longzhong Dui. This involves setting up a base of operations in the south of China, and from this southern stronghold, launch attacks against the north and to the east to ultimately defeat Cao Wei and the Eastern Wu, thereby unifying the country and restoring the Han, which of course was the mantle claimed by Liu Bei's Shu Han kingdom. And although the initial goal was to defeat the stronger Wei kingdom to the north that controlled the Yellow River Basin, the plan first called for an alliance with the Wu kingdom to defeat Wei and then to turn on Wu and defeat them. After Liu Bei died in the fortress at Baidicheng, Zhuge Liang, also referred to as Crouching Dragon, became second in command of the Shu Han kingdom under Liu Bei's son, Liu Shan. Liu Shan, being young and all, left uh, affairs of the Shu Han kingdom to Zhuge Liang, who needed time to build up the power there. Zhuge Liang entered into an alliance with uh, Eastern Wu against the more powerful Cao Wei to the north. Zhuge Liang also pacified the southern tribes and 
integrated them into his military, and they served to beef up the Shu Han forces when they squared off later against the Cao Wei. In 227, Zhuge Liang launched his first of five so-called northern expeditions against Cao Wei. Only one of the five met with any success, and Zhuge Liang died in 234 during the final campaign. Zhuge Liang's successor as regent to the emperor, Jiang Wan, uh, didn't have the stomach for war that Zhuge Liang had, and he pulled back in 241, and from that point on, Shu Han was in a defensive position until they were, in the end, the first of the three kingdoms to be overthrown, which we'll get to shortly. His nemesis in the northern expeditions was one Sima Yi, who we'll also get to in a moment. Once Zhuge Liang passes from the scene, it's sort of all downhill for the Shu Han. Now, there's a lot more to it, and we have many characters involved in the ultimate destruction of Shu Han, such as uh, Zhong Hui, Deng Ai and, uh, on one side, and uh, Jiang Wei defending uh, the Shu Han. Now, all this time, the Eastern Wu were constantly battling against the more numerous and superior Cao Wei forces. Everyone was always trying to trick one another by pretending alliances and pretending weaknesses or pretending strengths that didn't exist. In fact, this whole period is rife with one skirmish or battle after another. But mostly it was Shu and Wu against Wei. The Wu kingdom was almost always under the control of the very same Sun Quan, whose generals had outsmarted Cao Cao's forces at Red Cliff. He had some staying power and lived to the age of 70, or long enough to see his Wu kingdom begin to decline, which it was already doing in 252 when he breathed his last. Despite the constant warring, the Wu kingdom prospered economically during uh, Sun Quan's reign. It wasn't a bad time there. But up in the north, in Cao Wei, by the 230s, things were starting to get dicey. Now, the kingdom of Wei, as you know, was ruled by the family of Cao Cao. His son, Cao Pi, was the first emperor. It had been ruled using the harsh legalist principles of the bad old Qin Shi Huang days. The kingdom of Wei was in many ways a military dictatorship led by the Cao's. Cao Cao created a policy of assimilating the Xiongnu and other nomadic tribes and moved a lot of them into Shanxi province. These northern steppe people really made up Cao Cao's best soldiers. This process of bringing in all these so-called barbarians into the immediate China orbit and pressuring them to assimilate had somewhat dire consequences later on when these newly sinicized barbarian tribes try and set up their own dominions within China proper. Now, the Cao family had some competition for power within Wei. Uh, they had to contend with the Sima clan. The kingdom of Wei by 230 was still controlled by the Cao clan. The Sima family was a great land-holding family during the Han and also now under the Wei where they served at the court. Sima Yi's successful defense against the invading forces of Zhuge Liang from Shu Han gained the family even more power and acclaim. Now, Sima Yi, he had a grandson named Sima Yen, who we'll get to as soon as things come to a crashing conclusion for the Three Kingdoms period, and China once again is unified, albeit uh, briefly. Now, Sima Yi, he had served under Cao Cao and under Cao Cao's son Cao Pi when he became the Emperor of Wei. He served Cao Pi most loyally, and his good deeds were amply rewarded as he grew in power in the Kingdom of Wei. 
But the inner sanctum of Wei, which of course was ruled by the descendants of Cao Cao, was extremely political and nasty. The Cao family, which included the emperor and all the various other Cao's who surrounded him, became somewhat wary of Sima Yi and did their best to separate him from the government. They bestowed all kinds of honors on him for his great job as a military leader, but kept him at bay inside the corridors of power. In 247, Sima Yi, tired of all the backstabbing and attempts to marginalize him, simply retired from service. The emperor at the time, or the head Cao, was Cao Shuang. As the story goes, when Cao Shuang sent an envoy to see what was up with Sima Yi, Sima acted insane and deceived them into thinking he had indeed become mentally ill. So, with their guards down, the Cao ruler and his various other Cao's sort of took their eyes off Sima Yi. And then, in 249, Sima Yi staged a coup and overthrew Cao Shuang and his gang and had them all executed. Now, back when Sima Yi uh, served under Cao Cao, the great general had said back then to look out for this guy because he had ambitions of power. So, this prophecy had come true. Sima Yi consolidated his power quickly, and by the time of his death in 251, his uh, Sima clan had replaced the Cao's as the rulers of Cao Wei. By 263, the Wei conquered the Shu, or the Shu Han, of Liu Bei's family. This campaign against the Shu was known in Mandarin as the Wei Mie Shu Zhizhan. The Shu was the easier kingdom to beat, and they lacked the huge advantage that the Eastern Wu had in the Yangtze River region. The Shu kingdom had the smallest population, and besides this, despite their relative disadvantage against Cao Wei, they were always pecking at them and striking out against the Wei, so they had to go. So as I mentioned earlier, the Shu kingdom goes first. One down, one to go. Only Wei and Wu left standing. Sima Yi, he was succeeded by his son Sima Shi, who spent his remaining four years fending off the Cao's and their supporters. He died in battle in 255 and was succeeded by his brother Sima Chao. Now, mind you, up in Cao Wei, the emperor of the Cao family still sat on his throne, but all power was firmly in the hands of the Sima's and Sima Zhao was able to pick up where his brother left off, fending off plots against him and controlling things back in the capital uh, in uh, Luoyang. Sima Zhao later had himself named King of Jin and had been busy sort of laying the groundwork for a usurpation of power from the Cao family. He didn't live to do it, but his son, Sima Yan, who succeeded him in 265, did the deed and deposed the emperor, and that was the end of the Kingdom of Wei, or Cao Wei. Now it became the Kingdom of Jin, and Sima Yan was the first emperor and reigned as Emperor Wu, or Jin Wu Di. That's Jin for the dynasty name, Wu was his posthumous name, and Di, of course, after so many podcasts, you probably know, means emperor. So, Jin Wu Di, Emperor Wu of Jin. At once, he began stuffing the kingdom's important offices with all his relatives and did the same old thing uh, that the Zhou dynasty emperors had done with the enfiefment system, and each principality had its own military command and regional authority. On the one hand, this made for effective governance, but China by this time had plenty of instances where, when power was divvied out to the outlying regions, they sooner or later created mischief and caused all kinds of grief for the central authority. 
as they, of course, learned back in the uh, Western Zhou times. So the time of Sima Yan, or Jin Wu Di, was a good one if you were a noble. They were given a lot of power and perks, which they took full advantage of. Uh, and Sima Yan, or Jin Wu Di, was known as an extremely wasteful and extravagant emperor. China's population during this time had been greatly reduced to somewhere around 16 million. And uh, Jin Wu Di, the emperor, he had 10,000 concubines who stood by to serve his needs, whatever they may be. 10,000 concubines. It would take him 27 years just to be with each one if he had only uh, one concubine per day. Well, he reigned for 25 years, so who knows? Maybe he was able to get to know them all. Now, the Eastern Wu Kingdom, no relation to Emperor Wu of Jin, was causing all kinds of trouble militarily. You had Emperor Wu of Jin and Emperor Sun Hao of Wu. These two Wu's are different Chinese characters. One is second tone Wu, and one is third tone Wu. You may recall the Eastern Wu Kingdom was the territory of the Sun family, the founder, of course, being Sun Quan. By 280, Sima Yan had defeated them, and he was the last one standing. He had usurped power from the Cao Wei rulers, uh, gone on to defeat the Shu, and then turned his might on the last of the three kingdoms, the Eastern Wu. So that's the end of the Three Kingdoms period. So it was in 280 that China is once again unified, or unified to the extent that the Jin rulers were able to control. The seeds of the dynasty's destruction were sowed immediately by giving uh, all this power to the Jin emperor's relatives. This strategy had been tried before and failed. Within a decade, the Jin is already falling apart. Sima Yan, or Emperor Jin Wu Di, died in 289 and was succeeded by a weak son. This muddle-headed emperor, the son of Sima Yan, known as Emperor Hui, was the butt of many a good Chinese historical joke. He is known as a simple-minded fool, and it's no wonder things began to fall apart so quickly. Emperor Hui was murdered in 306. Although fate wasn't too kind to this emperor, at least he didn't suffer the fate of the last emperor of the Western Jin who followed him. This was the tragic Emperor Min, Min Di. Min was his posthumous name, and, and Min means pity or suffering. Now, this uh, Jin Min Di, he was the grandson of the Jin dynasty founder Wu Di. He took over from the poisoned emperor Hui Di when he was 43 years of age. So now he rules from Chang'an, but Chang'an, by the time he sat on the throne as emperor, was a shell of a city. The city was almost abandoned. There was famine everywhere. Uh, even the emperor had nothing to eat. By the time he surrendered to the invading Xiongnu general Liu Yao, there was nothing left of this once great city that had been the center of the world at one time. Emperor Min surrendered and was made to walk the streets, uh, stripped to the waist, leading a sheep in one hand, and in the other hand pulling a coffin carriage. And to make the uh, humiliation worse, he had to carry the imperial seal, the symbol of his authority, on a string that he held uh, between his teeth. This wasn't the end of the uh, last emperor of Western Jin. He was then taken as a prisoner back to the Xiongnu capital of Pingyang. Uh, the king of this Xiongnu state of Han Zhao was a guy named Liu Cong. 
he made this former Western Jean emperor wear the uniforms of a servant and was made to serve like a butler at many of the king's official and social functions. And when he went hunting, the king would make the former emperor mean run in front of the horse with the dogs. And finally, he was put out of his misery in his uh, 47th year and uh, executed. It was in 311, a landmark year in Chinese history, that the Jin were kicked out of their capital in Luoyang, and this ancient city, where emperors had ruled for centuries upon centuries, was sacked and burned to the ground. The Jin nobles had already hightailed it to the south, below the Yangtze, in the city of Jiankang, or modern-day Nanjing. With the sack of Luoyang in 311, the western Jin came to a crashing end. Now, the Eastern Jin was established, and from 317 to 420, which is just over a century, this dynasty marched on. Now, ahead of the establishment of the Eastern Jin, you had a very large migration of northern Chinese who were escaping the ravages of the Xiongnu and all the famine and difficulties up north. They fled to the south in and around the Yangtze. These people, by the way, these northern ke, or, or guest people, who migrated from the north to the south, were a mix of both Xiongnu and Han people. Well, these became known as the Hakka people. I'm sure many of you have heard of them. The Hakka people played a, an immense role in the history of China that followed. Like the Cantonese and the Fujianese, the Hakka were one of the great groups of people who made up the so-called Chinese diaspora. So you have Hakka people all over the world. Hak is Cantonese for guest, and Ga means family or a people. In Mandarin, they're called the Kejiaren. So after the Xiongnu sacked Luoyang and this mass migration occurred from north to south, besides the Jin court and nobles, you also had all these guest people who now greatly expanded the population in the south and sort of evened out the population between the north of the country by the Yellow River uh, with the southern part of the country where the Yangtze River flowed. Now, I promise, once we get past the north-south dynasties, it's all smooth sailing to the last emperor, Puyi. If we can just suffer through the Nanbei Chao from 386 to 581, then the worst is over. Well, there's a brief 72 period after the Tang Falls, where you have the uh, five dynasties and ten kingdoms period. I'll tell you, it's really exhausting, this time period. There's so many details and stories and battles to contend with. The first emperor of the Eastern Jin was still of the Sima clan. He was Sima Rei, uh, who ruled as the Jin Emperor Yuan, or Jin Yuan Di. Now, he's a great-grandson of Sima Yi, so he has some good bloodlines. He was down in the south already when word had come of the murder of the pitiful Emperor Min. So this Sima Rei declared himself emperor of the Eastern Jin in the new capital of uh, Jianye, or Jiankang, as it's now known, starting in the Eastern Jin period. Uh, we know it today, of course, as Nanjing. The Eastern Jin pretty much degrades in no time at all to the period known as the Sixteen Kingdoms from 304 to 439. Now, who were these Sixteen Kingdoms or states? If you recall, during the Three Kingdoms period, Cao Cao had integrated all these non-Han barbarian tribes into Cao Wei to serve in the military and work on infrastructural projects and farm the land. These people were known as the Wu Hu, or the Five Barbarians. These Wu Hu people 
rose to power in the wake of the devastating war of the Eight Princes or the Bawang Zhiluan that weakened the Western Jin to the point where later they were easily kicked out of their northern China base. This war of the Eight Princes spelled the beginning of the end for the Emperor Hui and then the, for the pitiful Emperor Min. It all started after the passing of the Jin Dynasty founder, Emperor Wu. These Eight Princes were all of the Sima clan given power at the outset by the first emperor, Jin Wu Di, and they all fought amongst themselves until there was only one left standing, but the resulting devastation to put down this revolt weakened the Jin to the point where the Wu Hu people were able to turn on them, and as we know, in 311, with the sacking of Luoyang, and 316, after the sack of Chang'an, they forced them to flee to the south, to the lands of the former Eastern Wu Kingdom, where the Eastern Jin was set up. So this 16 kingdoms period, well, for the most part, these were kingdoms of these Wuhu people more than Han Chinese. The first of the 16 kingdoms to rebel and break away from the Jin was the Han Zhao kingdom, led by the Xiongnu leader Liu Yuan. This uh, resulting uh, 16 kingdoms period consisted of 130 more years of fighting between all these petty kingdoms and competing states. Northern China was not the place to be during this time of the 16 kingdoms. You can say that the advancement of Chinese civilization sort of slowed down during this, well, not really dark age like Europe suffered beginning in the 5th and 6th centuries, but it was a rather unpleasant time in China and as dark an age as there ever was uh, back then. Another of the uh, 16 kingdoms was the Zhao kingdom of the Jie people. They were a people who were part of the Xiongnu Confederation. There was a King Shi Le uh, who founded the kingdom known as the Later Zhao, which was located around Hebei. Shi Le, like Liu Yuan before him, was a rebel who rose up against the Western Jin. And he's credited, by the way, with the sack of Luoyang in 311. He was instrumental in booting the Jin out of the north, and he set up his own kingdom called the later Zhao Kingdom to differentiate it from the former Zhao that had just been overthrown. This uh, Shi Le was famous for embracing Buddhism and doing quite a bit to establish it in his kingdom. The eastern Jin was recovering down in Nanjing, and by 406, they were powerful enough to the extent that they sent one of their generals, Liu Yu, to take back the northern territories lost to the Wuhu disturbances. So, 409 to 416, Liu Yu and his forces begin to take it all back. And this they did. All the territory south of the Yellow River was ultimately won back by the Jin forces. So the eastern Jin enjoys a bit of a comeback thanks to the military genius of Liu Yu. They took back the ancient capitals of Luoyang and Chang'an, although they couldn't quite hold Chang'an and ended up losing it again. Uh, one thing to note during this period of relative chaos, Buddhism was really starting to take hold. And it had already been introduced into the country, but from here on out, from the period of the Sixteen Kingdoms and also during the period we've yet to discuss, the Five Dynasties in the South, Buddhism begins to truly take hold all over China. And we'll come back another day and focus in on how Buddhism became such a major force in Chinese culture. For now, just be aware that during this time of the Han, the Three Kingdoms, and now the time of the Sixteen Kingdoms and Five Dynasties, Buddhism uh, now was here to stay.
This is a very interesting time in northern China in that all these barbarian tribes, which included the Xiongnu, of course, and the Xianbei and Wuhuan, nomadic people, among others, uh, six of the 16 kingdoms were led by people of the Xianbei tribes. Despite being nomadic people of the steppes and Manchuria, these barbarian tribesmen really took to Chinese culture. And like you'll see with the Mongols during the Yuan Dynasty and the Manchus of the Qing, they became completely sinicized, and you might say the superiority of Chinese culture sort of turned these barbarians into full-fledged Han. Well, not ethnically, of course, but certainly in terms of the shared Han-Chinese culture, sensibilities, and values. So the floodgates sort of opened during the time of Cao Cao, and his policy to use them as additional labor and for military uses. And this wave of northern nomadic people, these barbarians, for lack of a better word, just sort of moved in and began mixing with the Han Chinese and were all turned into civilized Chinese themselves. So Liu Yu's northern expeditions win back this northern territory, including Luoyang, as I mentioned. And they didn't vanquish everyone, but they managed to win back a sizable amount of territory. Then Liu Yu seized the moment and ended up founding his own dynasty, this one called the Liu Song. This uh, Liu Song dynasty also went down in history as the former Song, or the southern Song, to differentiate it from the more famous Northern Song Dynasty of 960 to 1127. This uh, Southern Song Dynasty lasted from 420 to 479. Essentially, Liu Yu, uh, fresh from his victories in the north, puts an end to the Eastern Jin in 420, and it's then that he establishes this Southern Song Dynasty. And we're going to stop here and pick up next time with the period of the Nanbei Chao, or the southern and northern dynasty period that lasted from 420 to 589. This was the period that preceded the Sui dynasty that unified China once again, and of course the Sui dynasty sort of goes hand in hand with the Tang dynasty. This was a lot to throw at you, I know, this uh, time of the Three Kingdoms, Western and Eastern Qin, and the Sixteen Kingdoms, also known as the period of disunity in China, was a very important time in Chinese history and the development of Chinese culture. Many of the legends and stories that came from this period are still told today and have been popularized not only in novels and Chinese cinema and TV, but also very much so in various uh, kinds of video games and comic books uh, enjoyed by young people all over Asia, and not just in the Chinese-speaking world either. You had the mass migrations of northern Chinese and nomadic people down to the less populated south, which created a rich new dynamic. Uh, Buddhism was bringing about all kinds of changes to both the rulers and those who were ruled. There emerged a more refined kind of porcelain ware, a kind of greenish proto-celadon during the Jin dynasty. And, and, and Taoism was advanced a great deal and buried its roots deeper into Chinese culture and society. It's a very difficult period of time to present because, well... It's a lot of characters, a lot of people, a lot of battles, names, places, uh, kingdoms, dynasties, emperors, uh, military men, everything overlapping one another. So I've tried my best to make sense of it and give you an idea of these times. 
to encapsulate these two centuries from the fall of the Eastern Han in 220 to the establishment of the Southern Song in 420, you had the 60 years of the Three Kingdoms period from 220 to 280, followed by the Western and Eastern Jin, and then concurrently to the Eastern Jin from 304 to 439, you had the 16 kingdoms up in the north of China. And I didn't really discuss the so-called Six Dynasties. The Six Dynasties were made up of the Eastern Wu Kingdom of Sun Quan and his family, followed by the Eastern Jin Dynasty, and now we have the Liu Song, or the Southern Song, which is the third of the six Southern Dynasties. And they all have their capital in Nanjing. Anyway, we'll make sense of this all next time as we look at the uh, last of this period of uh, disunion and the Sui Dynasty that takes over in 589. And once again, you have a unified China. Well, at least for another three centuries. But what a three centuries that was. So, for now, this is Laszlo Montgomery once again wishing everyone a fond and friendly farewell from Claremont, California. I have yet another wave of colleagues flying in from Ningbo next week, so we'll be writing the next episode on the road again. This time, I'm visiting my old hometown of Chicago and then on to Boca Raton, Florida. Somehow, someway, we'll get this episode on the Nanbei Chao and Sui Dynasty produced. Until then, take care, everyone. Feel free to send me any comments or questions you may have via my website at www.chinahistorypodcast.com. Join us next week, won't you, for another exciting episode from the Annals of Chinese History.